Hello, my name is Dylan C, and welcome to the 22nd episode of the Night Reader Podcast, a free ongoing show of inspiration and a love for literature. Thanks so much for being here, and I hope you enjoyed my last episode. It was very highly produced, and it featured some of the most sounds, voices, and music of any prior episode. As I mentioned near the end, uh, I'm homeschooling my children right now, and have found time to produce my podcast regularly again. So I'm very happy to be able to have the opportunity to be back with you all. I invite you to read and listen along with me from the beginning. As I have so much positive inspiration and love for the book to share with you. If you enjoy what I do, please follow me. Subscribe to my podcast. Leave me a review if you'd like. My heart is forever welded to this project. And it just truly amazes me. I never imagined I could create something out of nothing. And that anyone would care about it. I wondered what scholars and higher-ups would think of me. I wondered if anyone would care to join me on my retelling of a 150-year-old book, and one that doesn't even read like a normal novel. But the responses and love I have felt in response to my work is heartwarming and reassuring to me. So I thank you all so much for taking this journey with me, and I'll never stop working on this cause. As you may know, I have uh, many projects that I'm working on, from publishing my first books to producing my solo music projects. It's been easy to get lost on all these intertwining roads. At a crossroads, when you only have limited time and energy to explore these paths, it's hard to know which one to choose that will lead you to the lifestyle you yearn for. Over the summer, I have struggled with many things in my mind, heart, and soul. From being a parent and educator to fulfilling the dreams I have in my heart of creating music and literature. I was taken aback when I saw that my listeners and interaction were still on the up and up. It brought a tear to my eye, actually. And so, although I have many things that are important to me, I have my answer and I know where my heart and success lies. It's where I first planted it. It is here in the show that I fabricated from nothing. I can't imagine my life without Night Reader now. It's my lifeline and my connection to others. It's my way to inspire and change lives and outlooks. It's my network, it's my connection, my, my line to other people. And so I thank you. Uh, whether you're here new or you've been here from the get-go, thank you. This is my path and I will not stray. I'd like to share more about Herman's personal life eventually in an episode coming up soon and we'll be approaching the halfway point in the story of Moby Dick. Um, so I'll be doing an episode diving into the themes and what the author was experiencing during, before, and after the time of writing this story. Herman's life is very, very interesting, and even more so are the numerous ideas and hypotheses and historians and literary professionals uh, regarding his life and his works. I have my own views that I've played with over the course of the last 20 episodes, many of which you can hear in the earlier episodes, about the arc of this book, you know, what hangs in the background, the backdrop, and such. But we have not yet touched on the ever-important conversation of the author himself, his reasons for writing the book, and how his story evolved over its course of writing, and what Herman Melville's deepest conscience was trying to put into words. There is so, so much to be said about all of this, and I can't wait to share more with, with you. 
so please stick around. Now, I've been poring over many essays of this book and biographies of Herman Melville's adventurous and tragic life, and by now you know that my feelings towards Herman, but there is still much mystery, much in his person that we will never know, and so much is lost in time and his timeline. Lots of things to think about. His relationships, his outlooks, beliefs, writings, personal events, they're all striking and interesting. Not only that, but we have the American masterpiece we've been moving through in this show, that being Moby Dick. I've offered many an insight into what I think the book is about. Themes, ideas, references, allusions, and such. Indeed, Herman Melville's book is a masterpiece of American literature, taking the form of many different beasts and reading unlike any other novel. I forget what episode, but... This is why I said we cannot approach this book by normal means. We must set aside all previous allocations of this book, and not read it as a modern novel, or even a novel at all. It has been suggested by many a critic that this book is far from average, and we know that. That is why, you know, many of us are often put off by the book, and to no fault of their own. I want to delve much deeper into the meanings behind the book, the themes, and what critics and philosophers have thought about its meanings, and my own beliefs. Some say it's a true vision of Herman's pain, angst, musings, and misunderstandings of the world. Well, not so much misunderstandings as an excess of knowledge. It seems Herman possesses the full globe within his ever-ambitious mind, and indeed, in Herman's great sentences, he surpasses the imagery and philosophies of man, religion, and life itself. It seems he has some deeper knowledge, or has seen something we cannot all see, as he delves into the absolute depths of the human psyche. We see ideas that have not been touched prior, and never been touched upon since. Now there's much to say regarding all of this, and I mean a whole lot. I'll save and compile it all for a special episode about the life and the meanings behind this book, but you can hear a lot of what I believe throughout my episodes. I'll put it together most likely near the end of the book as a conclusion. I'm also going to put together an episode going into details about Herman's early life and adventures in his writing career. As I mentioned, I hope you enjoyed last episode as we met Fidala and witnessed the first lowering. It was a frightful scene as whales were struck, a storm came in, small boats were in hot pursuit of the pot of sperm whales. One of the boats was broken by a rising whale that Queequeg had struck with a harpoon, and Ishmael and crew were thrown into the swell. I hope you all felt like you were right there beside Ishmael the whole time. Now, we also briefly met a character named Fidala, a foreigner to the crew of foreigners, as him and five other men were hidden deep in the ship this entire time. If for some reason you ask yourself, why? Well, it was insurance for Ahab. He wanted that extra crew, his personal crew, to demand. A crew that he knew was phenomenal and almost unworldly at what they did. When they were down in the water, Ahab, Fadala, and crew, in their small rowboat, jettisoned far ahead of all the other boats, some which had some of their best rowers. How had Ahab's boat jetted so far ahead? Is it something unworldly, or is this phantom crew really that strong? I wanted to take some time to speak a bit deeper of Fidala, 
as I have been speaking with a few scholars about him, and they have raised some questions I have not yet thought of. The first being Fidala's reason behind helping Ahab. As I mentioned last episode, some say he is a true prophet in this story, the truest one in the whole novel. I have heard talk that he is a devil in disguise, having made a deal with Ahab to help him enact his revenge. Think about the way the book first describes him, as a snake. I do want to say, though, that in the upcoming portions of the book, there are times when awareness of self shows up in Fadala, but we'll get there when that comes. I just want you to keep all these things in mind. But I do find it highly interesting to think that maybe Fadala is some form of the devil, and he's made some sick deal with Ahab in favor of his soul. And so that explains Fadala's reasoning behind helping Ahab, and also their almost otherworldly strength, and how Fadala seems to know so much more than the rest of the crew. We'll see in this episode that Fadala seems to be some sort of influential figure to Ahab. This is something that's commonly spoken about among critics and such. I cannot wait to dive deeper into him as the story brings him on. Just keep these things in mind. But also, make up your mind for yourself. What do you think Fidala's reasoning for being here is? Is he just a normal man? Or do you think Ahab has made a deal with the devil? Let me know. We met Ahab's boat and crew and picked Ishmael's brain about his feeling on whaling. Now that he's seen it, it's true dangerous. He's even written a will, and feels a weight off his shoulders. Every day he has, he's grateful for. And I wonder if this is some sort of deep hunch towards the future inside of him. You'll also remember the ominous signs, the spouter, Elijah's warning, all of these things that Ishmael ignored until it was too late. As events unfold, more and more is showed to Ishmael and the reader, and Ishmael begins to accept his undecided fate. The brush with death seems to not have bothered anyone else, as they're all used to it. We also had to talk about how men see and understand death, and indifference in this world. Now before we move past this area, there's a small chapter called Ahab's Boat and Crew. It speaks just a bit more about the situation we saw in the prior episode. But if looked at philosophically, but if looked at deeply, it really is quite the moving passage and could easily be overlooked. And it builds beautifully in intensity, this small chapter, until it releases in a beautiful, poetic, and deeply philosophical conclusion. Let's hear Stubb talking to Flask as they return to the Pequod on that rainy early morning. Oi, Eloa. Oi. Aha, Mr. Flask. Did you see that? Yeah, you saw. Incredible, huh? One leg standing in there like that? You wouldn't catch me doing that unless I had to plug the hole with my timber toe. Uh, maybe. I don't think it's so incredible after all. If he's lost his leg at the hip, maybe so. But you know he has one good knee, huh? And a decent part of the other left, mind ye. Do you know that for sure, my little man, huh? I've never seen him kneel, have you? We learn that it's often argued in the whale fisheries of the world whether a captain should participate in the hunt. I know it's been a while, but we had a fun historical reference here. We referred the great ancient military commander by the name of Timur, who fought in hundreds of battles 
in European and Pan-Asian countries. One who fought many battles alongside his men, even as a commander, and stories go that his warriors begged him not to fight alongside them. Here, Ishmael compares Ahab to him. But with Ahab, the question appears different. This is a special case. The success of the voyage is highly dependent upon the captain's survival. Every single instant of a whale hunt imposes danger upon you. Should a handicapped man be doing this sort of thing? Surely the owners of the Pequod did not think so, nor did they know about these things. You'll remember Peleg and Bildad, the owners. As for the next small part, Ishmael says that, quote, In a whaler, wonders soon wane, and the wonder of the new crew faded away, unquote. He speaks about how they often see strange things in people at sea, and, and at this point the devil himself could climb up the sides of the ship to chat with Ahab, and no unsubduable excitement would be created in the forecastle. And though this phantom crew soon found their place amongst the rest of the Pequod's crew, they still remained somehow distinct from them, especially Fidala, as Melville and Ishmael describe the mystery that is Fidala. Melville uses some very deep language regarding the origin of man and humanity's reaction to strangers, people we don't know, or, in a broader sense, things we do not understand. What we don't understand scares us. These are my insights. I'd love to hear what you feel and what you think about this. Now, we cannot forget the racial aspects of the sailors in this time period. We also hear Fadala compared to some kind of mystical being and he has a very mysterious influence over Ahab. Now the next chapter is very cool, and expounds upon the mystery that is surrounding the crew right now. It's called the Spirit Spout, but it also serves as a wonderful description of the crew's whereabouts, and is a rather peaceful chapter. I believe that it shows a sharp contrast of good and evil, as the entire book does. It reflects Ahab, Ishmael, and the entire narrative. It also offers solemn hinting towards dismal events, and shows us, even more so, Ahab's restless obsession. Let's hear from Ishmael where the crew is at, and feel free to check out the map of the Pequod's crews. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. From the North Atlantic, down past Cape Verde, and down to the Southern Seas, coming close to Rio de la Plata, to a section of water known as the Plate Whaling Grounds. These waters were wild and unstaked. We were gliding through these wild waters during one specific serene and moonlit night. The waves roll as scrolls of silver and, by their soft suffusing seethings, made what seems a silvery silence. That we did not feel alone. On this silent night, a great silvery jet was seen far ahead of the white bubbling bow of the Pequod. Celestial, the moon lay behind the jet and lighted up, some shrouded god rising up from the sea. It was Fadala who first spotted this fountain. Aye, he was up there every night on that main masthead, standing a lookout there. As for why, no one really knew and no sailor would lower away after a whale in the dead of night. And so, a seaman beheld this old oriental, perched aloft at such unusual hours, with quite fascination and wonder. <laughs>
It had been a few nights now he stood up there, silent as could be, not muttering a sound to be heard. But this night, it was he who first spotted that ghostly jet of white water, far ahead of the boat. After all these nights of silence, when his unearthly voice was heard shouting, There she blows. Every reclining mariner started to his feet, as if some winged spirit lighted in the rigging and hailed the mortal crew. How was it, then, that in these midnight hours every sailor jumped to his feet, feeling no terror, but rather excitement? So impressive was the cry, and so deliriously exciting, that every soul on board instinctively desired a lowering now, here come Ahab with quick side-lunging strides. Aye, you! Up to the mastheads with ye! To gallant sails, royals, set the crossyards, set the staysail! Up to the mastheads with ye, yeah, go! Go! And off they went. As they glided along horizontally, it seemed the Pequod wanted both to move forward and fly up to the heavens at once. And so there was also a war within Ahab just then, as his face glowed in the dancing moonlight, though his one live leg made lively echoes along the deck. Every stroke of his dead limb sounded like a coffin tap. On very life and death this old man walked. But though the ship so swiftly sped, and from every eye, eager glances shot like arrows. Yet the silvery jet was no more seen that night. Every sailor swore he saw it once, but never a second time. And so the crew rests. But the next night, it is again spotted by Fadala. The chases again ensued, but they never seemed to grow any closer to the great white apparition. As they traveled very far distances over a period of many days, at random intervals, the spot would again be spotted in the nighttime, for a few nights in a row, then disappear for a night or two, and back it would be for the third. Many men on the Pequod began applying a fearsome feeling to this ghostly white fountain in the distance. Some didn't even want to look at it anymore. Others felt enamored by its beauty. Some claimed it to be the terribly ghostly spout of a whale. Moby Dick. They dreaded that white fountain, almost as if it was beckoning them to some remote seas, only for the whale to turn on them and rend them in this most savage of seas. But in these days and in their geographical location, the weather was incredibly serene, and a strong contrast to the haunting apparition that served them nearly every night. The seas around them became very bland and no life seemed to stir in those waves. Almost as if the ocean itself was vacating itself of all life wherever the Pequod sailed. But at last, they turned eastwards toward the Cape of Good Hope, where the Cape winds began blowing around them, and they rose and fell along the long, troubled seas that were there. The Pequod, with its ivory tusks, bowing in the waves and goring the dark ocean until the great waves of white spray flew over her bows, the sense of nothing being alive around them soon vanished, but was replaced by an even more dismal sight. Close to their bow, 
out in front. Strange shadowy forms darted hither and thither before us, while thick behind them flew the inscrutable sea ravens, carrying all signs of death with their burly feathers. And every morning, rows and rows of those birds were seen, perched high above in the rigging, along the hemp ropes. Despite all the hootings of the crew, they clung to that hemp, somehow deeming the ship some drifting, uninhabited, roosting place for their homeless selves. And heaved and heaved, still unrestingly heaved that black sea, as if the vast tides were conscious, and the great mundane soul of the sea was in remorse for the long sin and suffering it had bred. Approaches the Cape of Good Hope, the southernmost tip of Africa, a very dangerous area of the sea. In the past, it was called the Cape Tormentoso, which originally meant uh, tempestuous. I suppose the Cape reeked of adventure and tempted travelers. But here, Herman takes the word to mean simply tormented, as he describes the seas to be terribly uneasy. They were also very lively, but still. Night after night, that great white spirit spout laughed at them from the distance. As for Ahab, though, he pressed on with his continual command of the drenched and dangerous decks. He remained reserved and very gloomy. Seldom addressed his mates. The days grew long and stretched out. There were many off hours, with nothing for the crew to do, really, in these gray, misty seas. Ahab, with ivory foot in his hole, stood there one hand of the shrouds, as he always does, staring directly windward, for many hours at a time, the occasional sleet and salt congealing his eyelashes together. His face seemed beat like old leather. The skin around his eyes was filled with folds, with that long, gashed scar going down his face. Aye, he stood out in front, and the rest of the crew, taking some shelter, would gather towards the aft section of the boat in the back. Out in front, the perilous seas would be bursting over the bulwarks. Now, this is a very cool and awesome image to have in your mind. The entire crew stands in line along both sides of the ship. They secured bowling loops to the rails, one for each sailor, each big enough for a sailor to sit in and hang in it, sort of like a hammock swing. A bowling is a sort of sailor's knot that is used for many different things. Uh, they would loop it around one of the pins. So it was kind of hanging there, big enough to sit inside of. So in line, the sailors sat on both sides of the ship and swung beneath the rails to better shield themselves from the wind and the crashing sea waves. So just imagine the entire crew on both sides of the boat sitting in long, long rows, hanging in loops beneath the sides of the ship. I have a friend of mine putting together an example with an illustration, so follow my Instagram to see what it looks like. For many hours, the crew would swing in silence in those gray waves, and the shrieks of ocean waves and the muteness of humanity prevailed among the crew. Still, the crew swung in their bowlines, and still Crazy Ahab stood up to the blast. It's no wonder his face appeared a beaten glove. And good and pure Starbuck, 
never being able to rid himself of that terrible anxiety. Poor Starbuck. One night, going down to Ahab's cabin to tell him the reading of the barometer, a type of weather meter, he was shocked and appalled to find Ahab asleep in an upright position. I'd like to take a listen to Starbuck directly, in fact. Let's see. Aye, it was one night amongst those tormented seas when I ran down that scuttle into Ahab's cabin, when I was taken aback. Nearly tripping back over the steps, I, there he was, Ahab of old, that terrible old man, sitting stock upright in his floor-screwed chair, all his clothes and jacket still on, dripping of snow and water. The charts unrolled on the table before him, and a lantern clutched tightly in his rigid hand, deathly clenched, I'll tell you. His body was erect still, but his head thrown back, eyes closed, but facing at the swinging compass that swung on the ceiling. His eyes rolled back and all white, teeth and tongue gnashed. Ahab looked as a body exhumed. I shuddered deeply. Terrible old man. Sleeping in this gale, still steadfastly eyes his purpose. So, we've got a lot here in this short chapter. The Pequod sails on, under more and more dire situations. And these ominous signs are ever-present. The sea ravens. And what about the spirit spout? What is it? Is it really even there? Is the apparition placed there by Fadala? If so, is it a warning of some sort? These are all outlandish ideas, but I'm contemplating here. I realize it's my turn to share with you my understandings of these portions. I do not really believe Fadala placed them there, but I do not know for sure. In fact, I don't really know what I believe the spirit's about to be. I wonder what Ahab thought of the spout, and about Ahab. We are reminded here of his and Starbuck's relationship. Starbuck's unabated fear of Ahab, despite all of his honor and bravery of the past. He's been sapped of it all, and somehow Ahab's purpose seems his, and all of the crew's. Some say that Ahab made a deal with Fidala. Some say he's the devil. And that is how he has this influential power over the crew. Some say that's nonsense. It's for you to decide. I don't want to press. I will say, though, that in my eyes I have no set feelings towards the mystery. It is whatever you think it is. And I'm sure that's how Herman Melville wanted it. To put your own impression, despite his own feelings and reasons for writing it. I'm not sure if Fadala is mortal or not or whether this is all some sort of supernatural prowess, coincidence, power, or just happenings. I guess there will be a time when we all decide upon that together, but for now, we let that mystery wander. The crew approaches and comes upon another Nantucket whaling vessel in the short chapter called the Albatross. Ishmael stands atop the masthead. Far in the distance are white looming sails, and as the vessel approaches, they recognize it to be a Nantucket ship by the name of the Albatross, or the Goni. 
It was an all-white vessel with white lines and white ropes, white wood. Looking quite ghostly, Ishmael says, it was a wild sight to see the men on that ship perched on their own mastheads, staring back at him. They were all bearded and wrapped in animal skins. This crew had been cruising for four years now, and it was headed back to Nantucket. The crew was ragged and overgrown. Three men on the mastheads of the Pequod, three above the albatross. As those men stood in their iron hoops far above the deck and swayed and swung over the fathomless sea, the vessel approached quite close, and as the two boats passed, they came so near to each other, and it so tilted, that Ishmael's masthead came so close to the other men's, he felt like he could jump to it. But no team of lookouts said anything to each other. They only stared on. But below on deck the crews hailed each other. Captains would often talk and exchange information, and sometimes meet with each other for drinks and conversation in the cabin. The Pequod will be meeting and greeting quite a few different vessels in this story, all which are very unique and serve their own purpose for the narrative. Something very telling happens here, though, and even the crew realizes it. The crew hailed each other, and the question was thrown. Ship, ahoy! Have you seen the white whale? The strange captain of the albatross, leaning far over the white edges of his ship, raised a trumpet to his mouth to project his voice over to the Pequod. Through the ripping gales in the rushing sea, but as that captain took a deep breath to shout back his answer, the trumpet fell from his hand and into the sea. And with the winds rising, the captain could not get his voice heard by any member of the Pequod's crew. The distance between the ships grew, and the crew here on the Pequod were eyeing each other on the trumpet that fell into the sea, and began talking amongst each other about how it fell the instant the question of the whale was asked. It seemed a terrible sign. Well, Ahab stared on, and he looked as if he almost wanted to lower and follow that albatross to get his answer. But instead, he fetched his own trumpet, as they called it, and knowing that the albatross was heading home to Nantucket, he shouted into his trumpet. Ahoy there! This is the Pequod, bound round the world! Tell him to address all future letters to the Pacific Ocean! And at this time in three years, if I'm not at home, tell him to address it to... At this very moment, the wakes crossed. The ships were too far from each other to hear anymore. Those harmless fish that had been swimming alongside the Pequod for days now shot away from it, almost as if in fear of Ahab's voice, and they began swimming alongside the albatross, headed home. Ahab noticed it. He speaks again. Oh, you swim away from me, do you? Sir Bulkington, up helm. Keep her off round the world. Round the world? Wow. There is much in that sound to inspire proud feelings in us. But where does all this circumnavigation lead us to? Only through numberless dangers and back to the very point we started. If only this world were an endless plain of discoverable countries and seas, 
with only our imagination barring us. Then there was promise for a voyage. But in pursuit of these far mysteries we can only dream of, or in tormented chase of that demon phantom that in some time or another swims before all human hearts. That desire for adventure and wonder. While chasing such things around the globe, they either lead us on forever in barren mazes, or halfway there, leave us overtaken. Need more be said of this chapter? We make our own surmises. The terrible and ominous signs are ever-present, again. So, why does Herman Melville include this instance? Well, it gives us some hope, I suppose. Showing this vessel returning home, unable to properly reach the Pequod verbally, the trumpet being lost at the question of the whale, the fish swimming away from Ahab and him realizing it. Despite Ahab's ways, I want you to try to see him as a man, as a human, that somehow has some feelings of love and care left inside of him. The way Ishmael describes him is monomaniac, monomania. Go look up at that word. It's been changed over the years, but there's still a hint of humanity there that shines through. He's terrible, though, indeed, but leave some room. Ishmael, a thirst for adventure. Well, he's gotten it for sure. And though the crew is feeling inspired by Ahab's grand words, round the world, he still thinks to himself that he knows this world. There's nothing truly new to discover in it. He wishes for something more. Now the big question of this chapter was Ahab's sentence that he was cut off so quickly. As the fish swam away from him, he says to address all future letters to the sea they'll be cruising in for the next three years, the Pacific. And goes on to say that if he's not home by the end of three years, to address his letters elsewhere. But he does not say. What was he going to say? To address them to hell? To the abyss? Or was he really going to say a different ocean? Did he cut off his own sentence in surprise of the fish swimming away? Or did he stop himself before he let the crew know he was certain about their demise? It's quite tricky indeed. Message me. Let me know what you think. Chapter 53. The Gam. When two strangers walk by each other on a path, it's difficult to refrain from some sort of mutual salutation, whether a nod or a wave or some exchange of words. It can feel forced and unnatural at times, but meeting at sea with a ship you know is from your area, and you happen to come across them in the wild oceans, well, that's natural, and it calls for a meeting of sorts. That would be called a gam. There'd be plenty to meet over, some of these captains being friends from home, and some of the sailors. Same with the sailors, and they often exchange domestic conversations. For the maritime and seagoers, history lovers and such, this is a very cool instance. The outward-bound ship would pass the ship that was returning home. The outward-bound boat had letters from home. They would stop and give the inbound ship these letters, and in return, the ship bound home would share knowledge of the cruising grounds and whales' whereabouts. Something that was very important for a successful and fruitful voyage. The sailors would meet and get along quite well. They all had similar goal and similar backgrounds. It was quite nice to meet in the common pursuit, 
sharing stories of danger and other such things. The country of origin didn't really matter, as long as both parties spoke some English. Even American and English whaling vessels would occasionally gam, though during these there was a certain kind of shyness. The Englishmen were rather reserved. The Englishmen sometimes as well would look down upon the American whalers in a looking at them as sort of sea peasants. I, well, Herman defends his fellow Americans here. He says he does not know where the superiority complex comes from, since all the American whaling vessels on the ocean in one day kill more whales than all of the English ones would kill in ten years. I, whaling was mainly an American business at this time. Alas, though, the American does not hold this hard against the Englishman, as he knows he has his own character defects. So yes, for a whaler, these meetings are a great thing. But it seems so only for the whaler. Merchant ships passing each other will not so much as say a single word, and will most likely be financially judging the other's ship. As for men of war, marines and such, when they meet there was so many professional decencies, bowings and such, that there doesn't seem to be very much down hearty goodwill and brotherly love about it at all. It's more superficial. Slave ships were always in a hurry, and they never met. As for pirates, they may meet quickly, but but being infernal villains on both sides, they like to keep to themselves. Herman Melville's wonderful wordplay shines through here. We keep all these questions in the back of our minds, even while reading more mundane and entertaining parts of the story. What resides in its spine? What is the true theme? Is there one? This book holds mysteries as deep as those penned within it. It's truly remarkable. Herman describes the word, gam, that he says is utterly unknown to other sailors other than whalers. Indeed, most other types of sailors, pirates even, will sometimes scoff or look down upon whalers, calling them blubber boilers and spouters. But Herman Melville knows his stuff and doesn't see where this looking down upon whalers comes from. He even knocks the entire idea of it down, as he often does with things in this book, you may have noticed. In this time, there were many things that were just speculated or false. Wrong, I presume. Well, there's still a lot of things like that this day, I suppose. But if Herman saw something wrong in his world, he decided to make it right himself, writing his own text upon the world. Does that sound familiar? Does not Ahab do one and the same? Aye. But this is dangerous ground. Some historians have said that the work is a true depiction of Herman himself. And I have said that I believe that, and I find it to be true, as far as Ishmael definitely being Herman Melville. But some say that's only half of him, and that Ahab is a true depiction of Herman's worst and darkest sides. I cannot claim this to be true. But can I claim this to be false? No. Though there has been and will be much speculation, the world will never have a solid answer. But we are given rights to our own free will and beliefs. I only wish to share mine and maybe guide you through an otherwise dimly lit cavern of oddities and verbosities. By hand and mouth, I wish to lead you, quitting the discussion of why and how. We are left with exactly, well, what is a gam? Well, Herman himself has penned out a definition for us. And I quote, Gam, 
Noun. A social meeting of two or more whale ships, generally on a cruising ground, when, after exchanging hails, they exchange visits by boat's crews. The two captains remaining for the time on board of one ship, and the two chief mates on the other. Unquote. So Herman tells us uh, we would wear out our finger trying to find it in the dictionary, but he believes it should be there. He claims Noah Webster's, quote, Ark cannot have it. A small biblical reference calling Webster's dictionary a Noah's Ark for language. His brilliance is always shining through. Now, at this Cape of Good Hope, it was much like a large highway crossing of the world. Almost like a four corners of a great highway where you come to meet more travelers than in any other part of the sea. And so there was a gam to be had with another homebound Nantucket vessel encountered very shortly after the Albatross, or the Goni. The ship was called the Town Ho. Now, Town Ho is an ancient whale call, so toss away all prejunctions. This meeting, however, wildly heightened the general interest and fear among the men of the Pequod regarding Moby Dick. That is because the Town Ho has its own story touching Moby Dick, a brutal death, and the story has a secret that only a few men know. Not the captain of the town ho. Not Ahab knew. Very few men aboard the town ho knew the whole of this unsaid story, but communicated it in secrecy during the gam to Tashtigo, the Indian harpooner. Nights later, Tash spoke in his sleep, revealing portions of the story. The next morn, the men forced it out of him. Still, it was such a serious and overwhelmingly dark tale that it never made it out of that forecastle. But one of those lucky ears was Ishmael's. And so, Ishmael wishes to narrate this entire story for us, the town hose story, which has later connections to the book, and is very entertaining in and of itself. It was actually published in magazines and such as a standalone story, and it did well. It touches on the highly controversial subject of flogging in the whale fishery, and in the army, which Herman wrote an entire different book about, but that's another story, of course. I want to reiterate that the town ho story is said by historians to contain much of the original ideas of Moby Dick. Moby Dick was rewritten about halfway through and largely changed due to Herman being inspired by a friend and contemporary, Nathaniel Hawthorne. That is when he took the book to much higher planes. It seems, though, that much of his original story survives in the Town Hose story. Some say Captain Bildad, owner of the Pequod, who you will remember from back on Nantucket, was originally supposed to serve as an abusive captain of the Pequod, before Ahab was even thought of. You may also remember mention of Bulkington, a whaler who was highly regarded amongst his crew that showed up in the night at the Spider Inn, piquing Ishmael's interest as to why Bulkington was popular amongst his amongst his fellow whalers. Some have said that Bulkington was originally meant to play a much larger role in this story, possibly a friend to Ishmael, or the mutineer in the story, but was replaced by another character, steel kilt, and scrapped, but hints survive, like that early scene. Bulkington is then dismissed from the book early on, as they depart on Christmas. Anyway, I don't want to get too confusing, but I was wondering whether to bring this short story to life for you all, after speculation, I realized that I just had to do it, and I want it to be largely dramatic and very special. 
And so it's going to be a very great special, The Town Hall Story, a large and lively episode that will be fully brought to life with two very special guests that will be announced soon. It'll be a huge play-like thematic episode, as you hear much of that sort of thing here, but only in bits. This is going to be the most dramatized episode yet. I'm so very excited for it. I hope you come along with me. These chapters have shown us much, and keep in mind all of our characters and their own personalities as they travel across the sea here on the Pequot in search of Moby Dick. It's been fantastic to speak all of these wonderful and mystical happenings. I hope you're enjoying, and please leave me reviews or connect with me on socials. There are many ways you can help or support my show. Just ask me on socials how you can do that. I love speaking and getting to know my listeners, so reach out to me. I truly hope you can pick up these books and fight through them with all your will. For when you do, you are sure to emerge with something changed inside of you. Something you can only recognize by being in the shoes of another. So go on, knights. Drop your swords. Pick up your pens and reading spectacles. Let us read on.